is up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is blackballed for those of you who watch or listen to this podcast you know that over the last couple months i have been sort of on this tributary beat i guess i would call it uh completely unexpected this is not what i uh planned on covering when we were at the beginning of this year uh i didn't even know the organization existed but we have been covering extensively ex-members mostly of the plymouth brethren christian church And the nightmare stories that seem to follow anyone that has to leave this cult. And that's exactly what it is, a cult. Um, And I was talking to Richard Marsh. Richard Marsh is going to join us in about a half an hour. And I was talking to him about this, I guess, a couple weeks ago. And we've talked about it a couple of times where we think it's beneficial not just to show ex-members. And we're going to continue to show any ex-member that has a compelling story that wants to come on the podcast. They're always welcome to come here. And But we... I had mentioned to him that it would be nice if included in what I hope is robust coverage of this organization are opinions from writers, journalists, academics, and others who don't necessarily have skin in the game with a personal relationship with the brethren, but who can sort of explain to us why this organization seems to have so much power. Um, He is the author of Behind the Exclusive Brethren, uh, which is a book that just sort of takes a look at the history of the Brethren. And then most of it is focused on the Australian aspect of uh, of the localities that exist in Australia. Uh, again, the, uh, the organization exists in uh, England, uh, the New Zealand, Australia, the United States, and Canada, maybe a couple other countries here and there where they might have a small amount of localities. But nonetheless, uh, we have him here today, and he is Michael Bachelard. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Um, are you in a secure location? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my office at the Age newspaper in Melbourne. Okay, good. Um, it, was, it was great that you agreed to come on. Thank you again for coming, because uh, the book that you wrote, it was 2008, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, Behind the Exclusive Brethren. And it, it is... It, you know, interesting to see the parallels. Uh, just full disclosure, everybody, I have a copy of the book. I haven't read it all. Um, I, you know, I don't have an excuse. <laughs> I have COVID. I'm going to play the COVID card, Michael. Um, but, you know, the, the, the overview is eerily familiar to me and, and what's happening right now in Canada as far as the fusion uh, between the influence of this group over politicians who then turn around and give them fat contracts often sole sourced sometimes brethren companies are competing for the same contract which is interesting stuff and i don't know if it's legal or not because i'm not a business person but it, it sounds pretty shady and um i guess i'd like to start with first what made you what was the the sort of straw that broke your back when it came to okay i gotta start covering this organization or i want to start this book was there some sort of like incident that happened that just made you decide that okay now's the time 
Well, it's really interesting. You said in your intro that you were sort of down a tributary. Um, that's initially how it started for me as well. And I was asked by my editor, so I was an investigative, am an investigative reporter uh, at the Age newspaper in Melbourne. I was asked by my editor to, to have a look at what was going on in New Zealand at the time. This was 2006. And at the time in New Zealand, the Brethren had uh, taken, uh, had hired private detectives to follow the then Prime Minister Helen Clark and her husband and to, to, to try to establish whether she and, her, and or her husband were gay and then sort of publish that in the conservative press. And we had these sort of stories coming out from weirdly sourced stories in some of the conservative press in New Zealand uh, before an election there. Um, and eventually it, it was disclosed that, it, that these were coming from private detectives hired by the exclusive brethren to spread muck, basically. Um, so my editor asked me, well, is there anything... We had a, a state election. I live in the state of Victoria in, uh, in, in Australia. We had a state election coming up. Were they going to pursue a similar political angle uh, or, 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 or take part in politics in Australia? And who were they? Um, so I went and found out. I, it was very quick. I rang a conservative uh, politician. He said, yes, yes, I've had visits from them and they're going to fund me, basically. So I wrote the story. It was just a story. Um, but I was swamped after that story um, by victims of the, of the organisation. I'm sure you're familiar with with that, and they told me a compelling tale about how awful it was, uh, what hell they'd been through, and uh, and the fact that it was now starting to kind of be be, be a player in politics really piqued my interest. So the, the, the sort of the human side and the political side uh, meshing uh, piqued my interest, and I just kept following them. And after about two years of writing news stories about them and features. Um, a publisher came to me and said, look, you probably should write a book. And I, I kind of agreed. Uh, is is the Brethren, I, 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 I sort of hesitate to use the label household name because it's difficult for almost any organization to become a household name in any country. Um, but as far as Canada goes, they're almost completely unknown at this point in yeah. time. Um, before you started writing the book, and now in 2022, what has that metamorphosis been like as far as the organization's brand goes, according to the public? Well, it, it differs in different countries. I think in Australia, it's similar to in Canada, despite all my uh, work. But that is, my work is now, you know, well over a decade old, almost, well, yeah, well over a decade old. Mm -hmm. uh, and they haven't been written about all that much in Australia. And they certainly have quietened down and become less publicly involved in election campaigns. Um, I think they got burned by by the events of 2004 to 2008 or thereabouts. Um, but in New Zealand, they're very well known. And that's because of, the, starting with that Helen Clark situation, um, there's been a number of abuse uh, allegations. They secretly tried uh, to support a, uh, you know, a conservative government there in a way that was exposed in a book by a, an excellent New Zealand journalist called Nikki Hager. Um, and they've really kept more uh, to the forefront of the, the mind in New Zealand. But in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in Europe, uh, they are virtually unknown, I would say. Um, what is... Hold, I want to circle back a bit because I, um, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask this question. They put a private investigator on a sitting prime minister? Correct. 
I mean, I, I, just like if yeah. you just take that and then don't bother getting all like, uh, you know, bombarded by the peripheral is, first of all, is it legal? Um, second of all, I mean, how accessible is the Australian prime minister where a PI can like park and know what they're doing? Like, what is, well, well, this you know? was a New Zealand prime minister, not an Australian prime minister. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think probably in New Zealand, more accessible, certainly than a US president. And I don't know what the situation is like in Canada. Um, um, but look, he's I, only accessible know. to photographers who happen to always be there just at the right time. <laughs> yes, he sounds like a politician. Yeah, yeah he does. Um, uh, in, in Australia, look, I, I've subsequently um, stumbled, because I wrote the book, I get a lot of people approaching me and saying, hey, I've got this bit of information about the brethren. I, I stumbled across um, evidence a few years ago, and they certainly haven't appeared in the press in Australia very much recently, but uh, a few years ago that they were campaigning for Scott Morrison, the then uh, Prime Minister, hoping to become uh, to, to be re-elected as Prime Minister. And there's, you know, there's a video that they're sending their mates of being near his car, you know, C1, where he's at an event and that kind of thing. I think Prime, uh, prime Ministers in Australia, certainly in, in most countries, would be more accessible to the public during an election campaign because that's when they're out and about campaigning. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Brethren had many meetings um, and this, these are documented and I have the documents with with uh, John Howard, who was the Australian Prime Minister back when I was writing about them. Mm -hmm. um, they like Conservative Prime Ministers. They do not like, um, you know, Labour or Left Prime Ministers. Uh, and, and is that mostly because of, um, like, it seems like uh, the trend that I've been hearing in other countries, including Canada, uh, was that they found a natural ally at least 20 years ago, anyways, between um, uh, conservative politicians who believed in the traditional definition of marriage and and more yeah. progressive people that um, understand that it's a completely stupid fight to have. <laughs> you know, like Yeah, so it's marriage, it's family, it's gay marriage particularly was an animating force in, in Canada. They campaigned very hard in 2005 against the... Uh, against the gay marriage legislation, there. Um, there can was, we can uh, we just talk about that for a second? Because I sure. think you are you're you're informed about this in Canada. This is something very new for me. I had somebody uh, tell me, uh, two people tell me, that um, there was some sort of fraudulent petition campaign where brethren would, uh, I guess, force um, younger members to basically sign fake names to form letters, and then those would be faxed or whatever to applicable government offices or MPs offices or whatever. What's your understanding yeah. in that situation? Cause when I heard that, I, I guess I wasn't surprised, but then it's, you know, I, I start thinking to myself, is there any sort of retroactive um, fraud charges that, that could have been laid, you know, at the time? Like, I just don't know, you know? Yeah. And look, I don't know what the Canadian sort of electoral don uh, donations and, um, and disclosure law is like, but, but what they did is they set up a, fake organization called the Concerned Canadian Parents. Um, they registered it to a post office box in a 7-Eleven store in Vancouver, I think. Uh, and Sorry, the, from the, that... The, the campaign was CCP? CCP, yep. Because I thought um, they hated communists and that's the Chinese. Yeah, well, yeah, so, <laughs> perhaps they weren't thinking along those lines at the time. But, uh, yeah. but uh, so... And then they, uh, f from the very top, who the, the, the world leaders in Australia, Bruce Hales, uh, so from the very top, they were ordered in every locality in Canada to campaign with petitions, with letters, with visits, 
um, to uh, to the Canadian politicians. Apparently, there was something like 10,000 letters uh, that were objecting to the gay marriage legislation. At least a third of them came from this one group, um, which was the exclusive brethren flying, as they say, under the radar. They don't. They didn't disclose who they were. They didn't disclose their religious affiliation. They were just concerned Canadian parents, as far as the politicians knew. And um, a lot of money went into it, and a lot of in, a lot of attempted influence, and it, it failed. Obviously, the legislation passed, but um, mm-hmm. but that was a template for them at that time. They were doing it in the US. They advertised for George Bush. They were doing it in Australia. They advertised for John Howard. Uh, conservative politicians globally were being, um, you know, were be, were beneficiaries of these quote unquote under the radar political campaigns. And Okay, I, I want to pivot away just for a second because um, you're a member of the media. According to my staunch research, um, you are considered, the age is considered the paper of record in Australia. Is that fair? Or is that like a company well, brag- braggadocious comment that the other <laughs> papers disagree with? <laughs> we, we, are, we are certainly one of the bigger and more credible newspapers okay. in Australia, yes. My, my question is, present company excluded, I, there's no appetite for this story in Canada. And I, I don't really know why. I, I, I can't tell if it's just that uh, legacy media outlets haven't allocated any budget towards this story and it might be bigger than just some blurb. I don't know if it's that. I'm, I might be giving them way too much credit. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's just like optics. You know, you don't want to touch religion stories unless there's some sort of obvious crime being committed. I don't know what it is. But do you have that same problem in Australia? Or did New Zealand have the same problem? I'll, I'm not going to name her, but... Uh, a fairly well-known journalist in New Zealand who wrote about the Brethren a couple of weeks ago, I contacted her to ask her if she wanted to come on the show. And to her credit, she was very forthright in saying that she is not brave enough because they're so litigious. And so um, I just my question is just about the media in general and why there seems to be not much of an appetite for stories uh, that surround this organization. Look, uh, it's, an, it's interesting. Uh... I asked myself the same question. I think the reason I got into it was because there was this political campaign. And since we sort of, uh, and it was happening globally and it was happening secretly. And the more we uncovered it, the the more they retreated. Uh, And so their influence on politics now, I I think it's still there, but it's it's very much um, hidden and and unclear. so that you know, then what you're left with is a story about a wacky religious group, uh, which is relatively small, and which does awful damage to its own members, but but not a lot of damage outside of that. So, I guess it's a question. Partly, it's a question of priorities. Uh, in New Zealand, obviously, they they feel very strongly about it because um, you know because it's I guess it's closer to the surface and there's more history there. Um, the other thing is that they are litigious. I've been sued. I've been threatened virtually every time I write uh, anything about them. Um, people I've spoken to and uh, and sources of mine have been either threatened or paid off or both um, to, to go away and stop talking to me. Um, and I've been sued twice uh, for one story. Uh, I was taken, uh, for that story caused a, a defamation suit, which my organisation had to fund and fight. And it also caused a criminal suit um, against me, which uh, in which they alleged that wrongly that I had identified a child victim of sexual abuse. So 
you know, yeah. they they yeah. they they can be tough to take on. Like so, you know, every journalist will do a kind of a risk reward or a or a bang for buck kind of um kind of not me uh, i just don't care <laughs> i mean what i mean by that is it feels like the it, it's such an obvious choice uh that it's the right yeah. thing to do that i um i don't really think about um the the litigious nature of this group i have this daydream did you have you ever seen the movie goodfellas yes um, when Robert De Niro is being followed by the FBI, I have this daydream that one day I'll catch a Brethren PI and I get to go up and knock on the window and go, come on, fuckos, let's go for a ride and have them follow me around <laughs> so that they know. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I just don't care. Uh, and but, you know, it is it does seem because I was never a member of a legacy media outlet. I was never a mainstream journalist for the last 20 something years. I've been freelancing. I've written for a bunch of them, but never, you know, an employee. Um, and I know, but I do know from people that work in these outlets, what the culture is, is like and how the priority of a good story is often um, put lower on the list than the, um, how, how easy it would be to get some other story out. Like as soon as they, they see something that might take four to six weeks to research properly and then maybe do a series of articles, they're not going to do it. Uh, and and it might not be for any other reason other than the fact that the format and the way that they decide editorial, you know, they don't have a budget for it probably because they've been cutting investigative journalism budgets for the last 20 years in North America. Uh, but I do find it, um, I find it very frustrating. And I'm sure yeah. you must too. Like, I think Australian reporters probably are a little more willing to write about these stories than Canadian ones because we, we haven't, we've had like one or two mentions within other stories on mainstream matter, but otherwise nobody knows. Yeah. Well, so look, you know, I, I run the investigative team at, at, at the age. Uh, it's the biggest, probably the biggest investigative team in the country uh, outside the national broadcaster. And we are well, well and truly willing to take on four to six week projects. And they, they uh, allowed me to work for sort of two years on the brethren. Hmm. Uh, you know, I would, I would be, Quite willing to jump back into the subject. I know there's plenty of stories to tell, um, but I'm, I'm currently editing and not writing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think yeah. you know you could I, always take an it, intern reporter and make him your human shield. Tell I could, cer I could certainly do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I could certainly do that. Uh, yeah, but but I haven't. And look, you know, to be honest, um, if there'd been the kind of scandal that's happened in in Canada with the um, you know Richard Marsh's story and the and and the private detective and the information that's come out there, or some of the scandals that have happened in New Zealand, we'd def, we'd be on it. Um, but they've been a bit quiet in Australia recently. I think it takes something to sort of pull that all together, uh, which is not saying we're not going to do it. But but yeah, um, it, it does take, as I say, bang for buck. You know, like the 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 political thing promoted it first because who are these people? You know, that was the big question. Yeah, and it's you know. Um... I've asked a couple guests this question, so I'm going to ask you this question as well. Um, is there something fundamentally flawed about Western democracies or Commonwealth countries, even specifically, that have sort of that underpinning of English common law that allows these kinds of coercion cults to exist more free than they might in, say, some other country? I don't know. Like that, that might be a really complex question, but I, I'm curious to know what your your thoughts are on that. 
it is a complex question and one I've grappled with because I think you're right. They, they, coercive cults can um, partake of and enjoy the freedoms that the rest of us enjoy, which, um, you know, and and while while we we think of religious freedom as being a a good um, because it allows people from all diverse faiths and backgrounds to practice freely their faith in a Western liberal country. I think that's a good thing. But uh, cults that coerce people and damage people are able to benefit from the same laws. So, for example, in Australia, I don't know what the situation in Canada is, but in Australia, the federal government funds, generously funds, schools that separate brethren children from the rest of society and teach them that the rest of society is evil. Now, I find that unconscionable and I've written as much as I can about that at every available opportunity. Uh, but as you say, people don't really listen. Um, so I, I think society, Western liberal society struggles with that because um, how do you tell and how do you, where do you, draw the line, how do you judge that this religion is coercive and this religion is not? Or this church within this broader religious um, framework, say, or, or take, take Islam, this meeting hall or this uh, prayer room is coercive and dangerous and the rest of the religion isn't. Um, it's difficult to do and you're on dangerous ground and politicians do not want to go there. Uh, and that's 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 the reason. I mean, I, you know, I've written as strongly as I could in my book. There's a whole chapter about the schooling system and how terrible it is. Not yeah, a word that would be a that, that hopefully would be a scandal here uh, if we found that out. Our hypocrisy regarding public money and, and religion is um, due to, you know, this country being... I don't know what it was back in the day, like 80 something percent Catholic. So uh, the Catholic school board gets public money, but they're the only one. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, well, that's, know. that's how it started in Australia in the 1960s. Mm. And then it, you know, it spread to everyone. So everyone who calls themselves a religion can put their hands up now and, and, um, and start a school and get funding. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Especially when, you know, like, I wonder what those committee meetings, if they even have any are like, if anyone is actually like, you know, uh, establishing the position of the side of, no, no, this is a cult. Like, like I, I imagine, you know, and I know Bruce Hales doesn't like to go out. He's afraid of the sun for some reason. I'm not sure why, um, but I, I, he doesn't go out. So it's, it's difficult to sort of like pin him down specifically. But if I had a Paul, if I was in a scrum and I had a politician that I knew had a relationship with the brethren and he, and I was picked as a question, the question would definitely be, you have a relationship with a cult whose leader says that he can talk directly to Jesus Christ. What are your thoughts on that? You know, and force these people to either throw them under the bus or look like idiots when they try to spin out of the question, right? So th this exact thing happened in the 2000, so which, which year would have been 2007 election. And the opposition leader, the, the Labour opposition leader, called them out, said that, that, you know, because I was reporting on them, it was in the public discussion, said they're a cult that breaks up families. It was revealed that the Prime Minister and the Treasurer uh, had both met with um, leaders of this group 
in, uh, in, in before the 2007 election. The Treasurer was confronted about this and he said, it's not a crime to meet with this religious group. In fact, it would be a crime if I didn't because I'm a politician and I got to meet with people from various groups. Um, so it was, again, it was that religious freedom argument and blurring the line between what's a legitimate religion and what is not a legitimate religion. Um, it's, it's politicians don't like drawing that line. What a grift, though, for people like Bruce Hale, you know? He could just say oh, that totally. he talks to Jesus. His flock believes it, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. and, and you know, like, maybe, maybe the church, the freedom of religion can remain, but maybe there should be some sort of scrutiny litmus test when they make certain claims <laughs> like, I can talk to Jesus. Okay, Mr. Well, Hales, if you can talk to Jesus, just one quick demonstration. Um, if you cannot prove that you can talk to Jesus, we need to figure out how to charge you with fraud. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I actually, um, I advanced, I, I advanced uh, a theory at one point that that the way you could judge was that was that you you uh, as a as a as a country as a as a society you give as much freedom to this group as they give to their members. And uh, yeah. I think that'd be a pretty good test for the for the brethren because their freedom is seriously curtailed. They can't go to uh, a church outside their church. They can't eat with uh, normal average people. They can't go to university and get a degree. Um, there are certain jobs they can't do. Um, you know, they can't have friendships outside the brethren. You know, they are restricted. That their dress is restricted. Um, how they yeah, bury they more how, gay how members. born and baptized. I, I think having but, more gay members would totally improve that organization. People would dress better. <laughs> they'd be nicer. You know, um, you mentioned him. So I'm going to bring him now. Uh, you know, he's a friend of the show. He needs no introduction. And I love his voice. His name is Richard Marsh. Richard, how are you, buddy? Yes, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Um, you've been listening in uh, for most of this conversation. Have yeah. you uh, gone down memory lane in your head and all the great memories that you have of being a member of the <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the great memories wouldn't take too long to go over. Um, mm. The rest of them would take a, take a while. Um, sorry, uh, there was a question there, uh, and it's totally flipped my mind. The Australian version of the story of the brethren. When I say the story of the brethren, what I mean is influence on politics, completely unanswerable to their abuse, and completely abusive. Uh, is it a template that each country does their own version of, or is it almost identical? Can you kind of explain, like, and it may, you, may, you might not even know the answer to this, but I, I'm just trying to figure out if, like, say I was a member of the Brethren in England, and then I moved to Canada, and I found a locality. Is it pretty much just the same as it was in England, um, other than the slight cultural cultural differences, or is it totally different just based on where you are? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the, the thing that um, people outside fail to grasp about the Brethren is how intensely centralized uh, the control is and how uniform every single congregation is all the way around the world. There's no, um, I mean, any, any local variations are kind of due to a permeation of external culture in, in terms of what's taught and approach to government and every other every other factor of brethren administration it's precisely the same in every single country right around the globe so 
um, yeah, in terms of their approach to government, yeah, yeah, they'll be doing exactly the same thing in, in every single country where they have a congregation. They will be support, they will be, they, they very much, and they do this in business as well as in government, they very much find something that works and then they just carbon copy it all around the globe. And it's very easy for them to do because it's a completely centralized organization. There's no local autonomy, only in terms of the most minor details do, mm. does any congregation have autonomy. Um, Michael, the, you told me something on the phone, I think it was early, yesterday maybe, about uh, sort of new revelations about how uh, business corruption, is, am I getting this right, uh, with the documents that you sent me? Uh, it was like, I am so swamped that I can't, I, I, I forget if it's Australia or Canada, but that's why I sort of asked that question. Cause I just wanted to see how, cause it seems like the scam is, uh, donate to politicians, mostly conservatives. Um, that gets you a seat at the table for eventual fat government contracts that cult owned businesses will then remarkably win at a fantastic rate. Um, you know? Yeah, is it, that's my my question is an overall comment, but like, can you speak to that a little bit? Because um, I, I find it ridiculous because you know I don't think cults should be making tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money because of all the things that they do that's heinous, you know. Yeah, so so this uh, this this is something I haven't nailed, uh, and I'd I'd really like to nail. Uh, but Nikki Hager and and a reporter in New Zealand, another reporter in New Zealand, have have had a good crack at it. That the way that their businesses, their charities, which are obviously tax-free, the tax that they pay uh, through um, tr family trusts and all sorts of other kind of arrangements that, that make up their uh, the kind of what they call the system. They call it the system. They called it the system back 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 in the day, um, and the winning of government contracts. So, so Bruce Hales, for example, uh, made his money out of office furniture. Uh, and he made a lot of it, billions, actually, um, I would say. And uh, him and his associated businesses, and they had a lot of government contracts. And one of the one of the ways they were able to do that is to undercut other legitimate um, businesses. And the way they do that, I think, is by tax minimisation and, and use of charities, but also um, by this kind of buying group that they have as a, as a brethren because you can order people to do things, you can order them who to buy from. You can order them to give loans to to new businesses or startups uh, that are interest free. Uh, you can order them to uh, use this pot of money or that pot of money or donate to this this or that you know organisation. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a big money go round, and it makes it a lot cheaper to do business. And so they can afford to undercut um, other other businesses who have to pay suppliers and make profits and stuff like that. And it, it, it's made them extremely successful. Yeah, and I'm sure they don't use what would probably be a really easy money laundering process with all of the churches that they have, right? Like, you know, or, or well, the mafia style in which the leader gets paid with his envelopes stuffed with cash. I'm just yeah. like... You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, this is, this is Bruce Hales. I, I just had the picture up a second ago. Um, he doesn't look like Tony Soprano, you know, he looks like somebody that Tony Soprano would make crawl like a dog on the floor, but he gets paid in the same way that Tony Soprano gets paid. And he talks to Jesus. Um, what a remarkable man, <laughs> Richard. 
Like, I, it's it's so absurd. You know? Yeah, I mean, slightly changing the topic a little bit, something I'd like to um, ask Michael about is the mm. lack of transparency in the Australian uh, trust structure. Because in the UK, for example, you can plug in the name of any company director and it'll come up instantly with all the company directorships they've ever had, trusteeships they've ever had, um, who their associates are and so on. Well, you go to these Australian trusts that the brethren own and every time you know you follow the money trail, it goes back to Australia. And then you suddenly get a trust with some obscure name, meaningless name. And you look up, well, who are the trustees of this trust? And the trustees of the trust are not people. They are other trusts. And so you've got this shell game going on where you've just got an infinite series of trusts, which are trustees of other trusts. Is that something that is actually an enabling factor in the, uh, the Australian end of the, of the uh, money conveyor belt? That it's very difficult to see who the beneficial owners of anything are in Australia. And is there any way around that problem? Yeah, look, 100%. And it's not just the brethren that take advantage of it. It's all sorts of people. Uh, it is an enabling structure for all sorts of bad behaviour, we think, but we can't prove because you can't see into them. Um, our charity system as well is much less transparent than the UK charity system. So, for example, there's a there are charities in... Uh, in Brethren-run charities here that are worth you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and they are described as basic religious charities and so you can't see their accounts. Um, it's, uh, we, we do have a new non-conservative government here uh, which, which has you know, recently been elected. They have a, a large amount of work to do. Uh, I don't know if trust reform is on their agenda um, but it's something that I would certainly like our guys to be writing about and, um, and following. We certainly have in the past. Uh, but it's it's a big, big tax evasion issue as well as uh, a transparency issue. Uh, earlier, Michael, when you were talking about the lawsuit that I guess it would, must have been your the media outlet, um, their lawyers took over. Is that fair? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So my question, though, is um, in Canada, we have something they're, they're calling anti-slap legislation. And what that is, is just like a, a mechanism to make it difficult for big, wealthy uh, um defendants i guess or whatever to to bankrupt the people that they're suing basically and um plaintiffs i guess but i was wondering because it didn't it sounded like that would that case uh would have been snagged in this day and age in canada and i'm just wondering if if since then if there's been any type of similar legislation to prevent wealthy people from just bankrupting people uh, via the court system no um no. it would be it would be lovely um you know, often media organisations, we know we're right, we can prove we're right, uh, but we don't want to spend tens of thousands, well, probably hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the courts to do that, so we settle, which is kind of what happened in my case, uh, and yeah. we walked away. Um, and so did they. I mean, we, you know, nobody won that case, but we, but we didn't litigate it, and we took the story down. So, um, and That must I'm have hurt, quite, though, a little bit. Well, I'm required no. by the deed of that settlement to say I'm very pleased with that outcome. Oh, are you allowed to say that you're required by the deed to sound like it? Like, are you, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's a uh, while are you ago. Required now. To sound I am not acting. When you say that. 
What's that? What's that, Richard? Are you required to sound sincere when you say it? I'm not sure I can, Richard. But <laughs> yeah, well, you guys have something in common. Though. Richard's also not allowed to not allowed to talk about something pretty epic that he went through. Um, I, I put yeah. up a cartoon, a little meme about it was a little cartoon illustrating a UBT sales meeting, and they were sort of pointing up on the whiteboard that that um, the most important thing is a Redmond business person is the ability to fake sincerity. Yeah. Well. Well, as they say, if you if you know, sincerity is the most important thing, and when you learn how to fake it, you've got it made. Exactly. But that's yeah. that's. I mean, there is a serious point there, I think, because cults impo- impose so many rules on people that um, really the only way to survive is to lie, yeah. and the only way to get away with lying is to uh, to be fakely sincere. And so, you know, these these well dressed, well spoken, nicely presented, you know, middle aged men in white shirts and brown trousers turn up at a politician's door and say we're a Christian group, concerned citizens, or whatever they call themselves, and we'd like to bend your ear on this or that. They they have been they've been practice, practicing since birth to lie and fake sincerity, and it works. People believe them. They're very credible, even though they're what they're peddling is human misery. Yeah. Yeah. And also, when they, when the brethren do lie, they can lie very convincingly. And the it's whole, not just in politics. Lie, the the whole in, system is yeah. a lie. The yeah. entire construct yeah. is a lie. You yeah. know, yeah. like it's, and I'm not talking about just like you know, uh, belief in omnipotent beings versus not. I, I, I can't get past the fact that Bruce Hales is known as a person who can speak to Jesus. Like that, that to me is is so unbelievably batshit that I don't even know how to approach it. I think it's so self evident that it is a tool for con men to influence people unduly and take their money. Yeah, but it's worse than that. It's worse than that because it's not just that he can speak to Jesus, which is a claim that quite a lot of religious leaders, um, Christian leaders might make in some form or another. He is regarded, and this is in print, he is regarded as the personification of the Holy Spirit, where if you understand (laughs) Christian theology... The Holy Spirit is one of the three members of the Trinity, the three parts of God. I think the Holy Spirit also has diabetes, you know? (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, that's suffering on behalf of the saints, of course. Um, This guy is actually a manifestation of God. He is actually, as Jesus was, this man is God upon earth, God walking amongst us. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. It'd be he fun drinks with... enough of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> that's why he's the Holy Spirit, right? He puts the Spirit in Holy Spirit. 
Um, yeah, it's it's yeah, they're they're kind of like that that little part of them is interesting actually. Like the the whole um, because normally when you like you know I, I've known people that were like brought up Jehovah's Witness. I've known people who were brought up um, Episcopalian and things like that. They generally, if you're kind of serious about your religion, they don't drink. Mormons kind of like that too. Um, I find it very odd that they're almost debaucherous with the level that they drink. Like when we had Ron Fox on and he was talking to me before we went on air about all the whiskey he used to down at, you know, just before priestly visits, I'd be like, oh, I guess you, if you're going to do something as heinous as a priestly visit, I guess you should get shit faced first. But, um, you know, I, I find that to be such, such a strange juxtaposition. Uh, you know, normally religious groups are not really fond of alcohol. Um, I wonder how that, stayed in is that a is that like a leftover residue of the jim Ter taylor era or something yeah i would think so that was where it all started and then it just became a thing and then they lead such high stress lives that i mean it's it's kind of like um it's kind of like their valium it, it like keeps them under control it keeps them subdued and if the stress and the oppression and the instructions all get too much then well you can always kind of crash out for a while with a with a very large scotch. I think it's a part of the control mechanism. I mean, a lot of religions do have intoxicating substances, cults, religions, cultures. Well, I must be more religious than I, I must be more religious yeah. than I thought, you know? Well, yes, yeah. I mean, whether it's whiskey or mushrooms, whatever it takes, you know? Yeah. Um, Michael, when, when you were doing your book, okay, because I, I want to tell you that I, I think we probably have this in common and I, you're, you'd probably be the first person that I would actually talk to who experienced what I'm experiencing now. And I think you probably experienced it at a much higher level. And in fact, I know you have just from this conversation, but um, the, the way that when you were, when you were covering it, when you were writing the book, what was the impression that ex members gave you? Um, Cause I have noticed an interesting common thread throughout many of them, which is this sort of um, salt of the earth decency that might be a residue of being brought up not looking at all the darkness for a second, but with some fairly, you know, standard moral practices of a religious person, right. You know, respectful to neighbors and, you know, all this stuff, like just the good stuff. And I see that a lot of these ex members um, are really kind of decent people. Like they're not, I, I don't see any fronts, you know, and they've all just kind of gone through a very similar situation. Some of them are atheists because of it, but some of them still really believe in Jesus. And I was just curious what your um, what your experience was like interviewing ex-members, and and did you notice a certain common thread like that? Absolutely, it's 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 a really remarkable, and and it's interesting that you've noticed it too. Um, uh, I, I couldn't have put it better, really. Um, but the only thing I would add to that is that. Um, that uh, something somebody said to me back back in the day was that uh, what a cult does is that it takes the you out of you and replaces it with a template. And so they've got these templated beliefs and, um, and, and ideas. And then when they come out, Richard, I mean, I'm talking about they, but Richard's sitting right here in the room. So it's a bit Anyway, a bit embarrassing, but oh, don't, but don't my my, ex <laughs> my experiences is they come out and they go, well, what's this then? You know, who am I? What have I? How, how do I build myself in the world? Um, and they start off uh, well, and look, 
I've heard some horror stories of people who've treated treated other people really badly, um, including you know sexual abuse and and violence and that kind of thing. So it's not all like this. But the the, the people I've met and spoken to, they are just trying to do their best uh, to fit in, to make their way, um, and to learn. And it's um, you know it's uh, it, it's a, it's a really difficult thing. Some of them lose their way. Some of them go back. Um, some of them are persecuted, as Richard has been. Um, it's it's tough. It's really tough. And and there's a, an alarmingly large number of suicides. Richard? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing that um, would be a common thread um, it, it is the when you emerge from the brethren, you have an incredibly low level of self-respect and self-esteem because that, again, is one of the things that I suspect is true of all cults, but particularly the brethren, that one of the ways they try and prevent you from rebelling and how they keep you under control and keep you um, uh, in a condition to be manipulated freely is by destroying your sense of self-respect and your sense of self-worth and any kind of self-love. You, you come out of the brethren hating yourself and I suspect that most people in the brethren particularly at the grassroots level actually live every day with a very strong sense of self-hatred um, which is, is something that's quite openly promoted in the brethren I mean it was quoted frequently in church meetings um, I think it was probably JT Jr said that every morning you get up and you look in the mirror and you say oh wretched man that I am which is a scriptural quotation. Uh, and they also talk about when they have their so-called priestlies, what they're aiming to do is to break you, to break your spirit. And they quite like Jesus use would. the analogy of breaking a horse, how you ride a horse and you, you know, you know how they break a horse by riding it until it's um, exhausted and it finally its will is broken and then it becomes a tame horse. They quite freely use that analogy. And that's what they try and do in the priestlies. That's what they try and do in the meetings. And one of the leaders said there's no more beautiful sight than tears of repentance in the eyes of a that young is, person. That is so Catholic. That is mm. like one of the most Catholic sentences I've ever heard you say. You know, Mother Teresa was uh, was an example of that. Um, it's still not like politically safe to criticize her, um, but Christopher Hitchens did a book called The Missionary Position, all about uh, Mother Teresa. But that was one of her favorite things to say, is that life is suffering. And mm -hmm. when she didn't improve conditions at the hospital that she built in Calcutta, and it was completely overcrowded with dying people, and especially children, that's what she would, that was her go-to phrase. Well, suffering mm -hmm. is life, you know? But it's more than just suffering because of poverty or suffering because of this or suffering because of that. Uh, you know, it's what... I think Richard's alluding to here is the, the breaking of the horse is about submission. It's a, and they, there's a lot of scripture on that too, uh, mm. from, from the brethren that you are, um, required to submit to the, to the leadership. Um, and so the breaking of you is done by an authority, uh, in, in, in the name of, uh, submitting to the authority of that, of that group. I, Richard, I've asked you this. I've asked you this question before. To be honest, I don't remember the answer because I don't think anyone really knows the answer. But I'm interested, Michael, in in and what your personal opinion might be. I have a theory that people near the top of the food chain on organizations like this—they're not true believers. I don't know how they could be. They're 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 committing crimes. They're covering up sex crimes. 
just in the last two weeks, I've heard of uh, a Brethren X member say that they did like completely fraudulent robocalling for the Conservative Party of Canada. Um, uh, there was that case in the States where I talked to this young man who was chemically castrated because he was caught masturbating. Another case of another guy that got chemically castrated because uh, he thought he was gay. Um, I don't know how you can reconcile an honest belief in God uh, and and do those things. So do you have a, a, you know, a similar opinion? Like, again, you know, it's impossible to prove like I do where the power brokers inside this organization probably don't believe in any of this shit. I reckon it's a bit of magical thinking. I think it's like, um, you know, you know, Santa Claus doesn't exist, but you kind of hope Santa Claus exists. Mm. I have heard from, this was somebody who was very close to Bruce Hales at a time and used to go and drink with him and give him comfort in his dark hours and things like that. Um, uh, I, I, that, that Hales would sometimes have self-doubt and wonder, am I the man of God? Um, and uh, I think, you know, you, you brought up Mother Teresa. She wrote quite a bit about self-doubt and, and, mm. and that's a common and faith. thing. It's yeah. a common thing, and I think, I think they probably do that. Um, but they're that they too are inside a system, and it just happens to be a system that benefits them, you know, in phenomenally fruitful and 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 uh, wealthy, you know, in ways of wealth and worldly comfort. So they're prepared to live with it. That's probably a public relations strategy as well. Bruce Hales lets it out publicly that. He had doubts. And who are the names that you just brought up? Mother Teresa. <laughs> fucking Jesus himself had doubts, didn't he not? Like he's like, I'm not, I'm not sure if this was all worth it. Like he like there was, you know, I can't remember what the scripture is, but you know, um, and there's a whole thing in Christianity about how you're gonna have to put up with people that doubt you. God understands that you might doubt, but come back to the flock and all that kind of stuff. So I see Hales calculating all that before he releases a statement like that. Is that what what well, it wasn't really a statement. It was, but oh. what do you reckon, Richard? Did, was was he known to, within the brethren, to be a doubter, and w how would that have played for him if if it had been known? Uh, yeah, I mean, he could have he could have admitted to having had doubts at some time, and it would have just said, "Oh, the humility of the man," you know, <laughs> everything. You get away with anything. <laughs> that's, anything that's like the life of Brian, right? Yeah, isn't that the well, life of Brian's? Like, you know, those who deny being the Messiah must be the Messiah. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, the Messiah. Kind of, oh, it, Messiah. It, it, it's always a win-win. I mean, whatever the answer is, the, the conclusion is, is predestinated. So I'm sorry, Richard. I, 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 Richard, I always forget that any pop culture reference that I make is just going to go completely over your head. I, I apologize yeah, yeah. humbly. You know, yeah, well, there's I'm a lot of space over my head, so you make use of it. Yeah. <laughs> In reality, he's just a naughty boy, James. <laughs> well, he, he, he did knock someone up recently, so you might be right about that. Um, the, the separation doctrine. Uh, another one of those common threads of heinousness uh, within this organization. Uh, we had Mr. Fox on. Um, I thought it was really compelling that he basically said that, that he had deep shame for the role that he played when he was one of the higher ups and he had to do doctrine of separation stuff and like keep families apart and utilize the legal power and the litigiousness of the organization to, to help destroy families. Um, you know, the the version of that that I hear about all the time, and Richard, you you schooled me really well on this stuff because it's been consistent ever since. 
Um, it has a Scientology kind of vibe to it. So if you leave the organization or if you're kicked out of the organization, um, they will then ostracize you from your family, who's more than willing most of the time to accept the ostracization. And then people in Richard's position, position are hesitant and sometimes just flat out refuse to sort of shake the cage because the blowback will land on the family that they left behind. Um, when you were writing your book, how much of that did you run into? And was that almost like a centerpiece of the sort of abuse that um, that they're known for among ex-members? Uh, a lot and yes. So I, I was just quick, I was rereading my, you know, golden words um, the the other day to prepare for this talk. And um, I, I, it struck me how many people I was quoting um, who would not go on the record and be named. And the reason for that was exactly as you point out, that, that they didn't want to be seen publicly as opposers. That's the word they use, opposers. And they didn't, and the blowback come back on their families. Um, and so, uh, and well, I'm sure you've heard of the three Fs, um, fear, family and finances. There are three things that keep people inside the brethren and not wanting to leave. And probably family is the biggest one. If you leave, you lose your family and yeah. all access to them. If you're a father, it's, often it's people, middle-aged men like Richard who leave, um, you know, uh, they, they won't see their children. Ron Fawkes hasn't seen his children since 1984. Um, you know, so it, it's, um, it's family, family is the big stick, really. That and, well, there's three big sticks, but family's probably the biggest. Yeah, the, not one of the, uh, none of those words were any F words that I was thinking of when I was, uh, <laughs> when you were trying to figure it out. Richard, um, are you, I've never asked you this before, which is surprising because I figured I would have at least asked you in, pub, in uh, private. Uh, the hesitancy, obviously, of um, rattling a cage uh, is no longer something that you're overly concerned with, I'm assuming, because here you are in a podcast, you've done many of them, your name is sort of out there. You're kind of like, and I might be ignorant because I, I am not part of the ex-brethren community, but from where I'm standing, you are more, you're like one of the more well-known ones. Um, have you heard of any blowback that has impacted your family that you left behind? And did you wake up one day and be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to make a choice here if I really want to do something for the greater good. Well, to make it clear, the blowback happens if you try and contact your family. If you tried to contact your family, um, and they um, reciprocated, uh, and then it was found out that they had reciprocated, or if their warped consciences got hold of them and they went to confess to having spoken to the person outside, that's when the blowback happens. So that's why I'm not contacting my family, because there's only two possible consequences of me trying to co contact them. One is they'll refuse to speak to me because they're afraid to, or two, they might speak to me, and then because brethren's phones, computers, or everything is closely monitored, there's a high probability that they would be caught in the act, and then the blowback would fall on their heads. Um, there's a, there's the, the, the blowback in terms of me speaking out publicly. My family inside are not going to be kind of persecuted by the brethren because I'm speaking out publicly. That persecution will fall on my own head, which is, of course, why the brethren are trying to 
following me around with private investigators and metal and everything. Um, so um, fear, the fear is largely religious fear because it's very strongly taught and drummed into you that if you leave the brethren, you, you, you're not safe for eternity. You're going to hell, not heaven. So that's, that's the fear aspect. And in my case, the finance aspect was solved very neatly because I didn't have any. So there was, uh, they, they already had it all, which was a mistake on their part because by taking everything I had, they left themselves without that big finance stick. Have either of you ever run into a story where a person like a father or mom was excommunicated, but the children were minors? And they ex and they decided that they wanted to use the justice system to get them back. Has that? Have either of you ever heard of that? Because I'm just trying to think of what the hypothetical situation would be where you could even fight. Because if you're above, I don't know what the age would be in Australia, 16 maybe or something like that. Then you probably they can make their own decision at that age, whatever. But if your kids are like four, five, and six, and you're the father and you get excommunicated, and the kids are brainwashed to be like, I don't want you around, Dad. I believe in Bruce Hales, the guy that talks to Jesus, right? And he's all brainwashed like that. Is there a court case that could conceivably take place in order to fight to get the kids back? Uh, yeah, I've covered. There's been many, many of them. There's there's a whole chapter in my book called uh, "On the Family Court," and there's another. And the way and the way the brethren have fought historically for the children, uh, even the minor children. Um, but there's one particular case that I followed where the the the, um, the mother, so the the father left. Um, the mother had the children. The father wanted access, which the law in Australia at that time said he had a right to, uh, and he wanted access. Um, anyway, he won the court case. Um, the judge made a very explicit laid out a very explicit instruction to the brethren, you must do this, this is the law, you've got to give, give to Caesar what Caesar's. And they refused the first access. Uh, he took it back to the court. The brethren fought, they got the highest priced lawyer they could uh, to fight it. Uh, eventually, they um, kind of, um, the, the judge um, was was convinced to withdraw on the grounds that he had a, a, he, uh, on the grounds of apprehended bias because he'd made these rulings before. In fact, he Sent, sent the mother to um, giving her a suspended jail sentence. And then another judge got appointed and then a family, blah, 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 blah. It went on for months. The father, unusually, in fact, it went on for a couple of years. The fa Unusually, the father kept fighting. Normally, they just psychologically break down and, fit, and run out of money and, and quit. Uh, on this occasion, he kept fighting and then a, a, a dumb idiot judge of the family court found against him and that was it. So they used, they used the court against... Uh, against him, they used the highest price lawyers they could find, and the kids can't see their father. In the judge's defense, he was probably drunk. <laughs> the, every lawyer that I know talks about how Canadian judges are like, you know, infamously intoxicated uh, on the bench. So um, I find that, uh, and it's probably another th common thread. Um, th it is especially heinous, though. Like when, when I was listening to Dennis Rag talk about that on the podcast and on the documentary Breaking Brethren. When you hear the recording of his eight-year-old son very sternly and very confidently explain to his father, I don't want to see you, Dad. I have no interest in seeing you. My son is eight. And, you know, um, when he says stuff like that, he's just kind of being a jackass. And I love him for it because he's funny. But to have your son actually say that and mean it, mm. I couldn't even imagine. Like, it's just... I, 
every podcast that I have someone on an ex member or someone like yourself, Michael, who, who's written extensively about them. I, I, tr I try to avoid, instead, I'm going to talk about it for five minutes, but I try to avoid the position that I almost always find myself in, which is the position of this is so absurd on its face that I don't understand why we are taking so long in trying to come up with some sort of coercion law where organizations like manipulate in order to like influence people to do things against their interest. It is such a cloudy sort of playing field, muddy waters yeah. or whatever. I um that I'm both flabbergasted at how surreal it is and completely without any solution ideas. And uh, you know, I don't know if that has ever come across like Richard, do you have, have you ever heard of a good idea being floated that could help a legal case against that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, I mean there was a there was a case about a year ago in in Belgium in a court in Ghent, I think it was, where the Jehovah's Witnesses were successfully prosecuted for their shunning, which is their name for what the brethren call separation. And they were they were they actually had to pay compensation to persons who had been cut off from their families um, in just the same way as the brethren do. The, the, the Jehovah's Witness organization had to had to compensate them. And that I think is the thin end of the wedge. And I'm sure Bruce was terrified by that judgment. Um, and, and really, it, it just needs a, a kind of a wave of enlightenment to spread through the civilized world. Um, and, and I think it will. In, in time, it will, because we're becoming more and more secular um, in the Commonwealth. Ideas that are purely Christian rather than moral ideas are, are losing currency. Um, you know, we claim to be secular societies, but there's still a great tradition and um, great great tradition of essentially Christian type thinking, which in, in many cases is, is unfair. I think hardcore um, conservatives would call that the Judeo-Christian like ethic. building blocks underneath every commonwealth yeah. nation or whatever it is. Yeah. Yes. And of course, the kind of Christian view of that, the Christians have this kind of mentality that without religion, there is no morality which is why they're so scared of atheists because they think an atheist person is by definition immoral. Um, yeah, we're the only group, and I say we because I'm an atheist, but I, I'm pretty sure that um, the thing that uh, gays and atheists have in common is that they're the only two demographic that are singled out in various countries, like a dozen around the world, where the death penalty exists just for being an atheist or a gay person. Yes. Um, which is, I don't know. I, I don't feel oppressed by it, but it's kind of strange that we're just, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't go there because you might get killed. Okay. <laughs> My Google is, uh, okay, I don't know why that happened. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have to go soon, but I wanted to, uh, I could talk to you guys for two hours. Unfortunately, there's another podcast coming on and that's going to be using the stream soon, so we, we have to go. Michael, I would love to have you back. I also want to ask you of if you're sort of back in the Brethren game, um, if the if if you like is are the stories that I'm doing uh, over here the podcast that I'm doing especially with some of the guests are they sort of making a dent at all in Australia sort of minds again like I, I don't know um, I have no idea you know if if we're if we're making a mark over there or not but look in the ex brethren so I never really left I haven't written about them for a while but I have uh, I keep a 
uh, an ongoing interest. So, um, you know, I, I look at the, the Facebook pages and the in the discussion forums and things like that. So, uh, yes, you're definitely making a an impact in those forums, mm. but uh, in the broader Australian psyche, no. And um, I think it's something that at some stage I would very much like to return to. Maybe it's because I swear too much and people are just like, fuck this guy, you know? <laughs> Serious one second, profanity the next. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, um, the, the, fact, the fact is that that iron-fisted central control that Richard Marsh is um, is talking about is right here in our very own Sydney. Uh, you know, that's, that's where it emanates from. So it's certainly something that we should um, take responsibility for, I think, in Australia. There's another interesting wrinkle there because it's one thing for an Australian cult to meddle in Australian elections. But when you've got an Australian cult meddling in Canadian elections, that gets a whole lot more serious. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's illegal. Uh, yeah. And that's why I emphasize the central control, because anyone who's been in the Brethren would fall over laughing at the idea that the congregation in Toronto just decided autonomously to back a certain politician and put all their efforts into getting him into into place of prime minister no all that comes directly from bruce hales personally he says we're backing this guy we want this guy to be prime minister of this country we want that party to to um form the government in that country and and so on for every single of the what 10 or 15 countries that have brethren congregations it's bruce hales that's meddling in the elections it's not the brethren per se I wonder if Jesus like rolls his eyes whenever Bruce calls. Oh fuck! Yeah. I should think they're permanently rolled. <laughs> Jesus had like a razor phone, like a flip phone, and it was always mouth. Uh, listen, heaven is driving through a tunnel, Bruce. Jesus, you know, um, I, I can't get over that part. I, I would be asking that uh, over and over and over again for to every government that gave this group a contract. You know, like was it a key selling point that the CEO could talk to Jesus Christ himself? You know, like, um. On the face of it, you know, I, I'm one of those guys, though, I'm pretty militant in my atheism. Like, I'm one of those guys that think that anyone that runs for public office should be given a litmus test, whether or not they believe in certain things, literally, like the end times, you know, like, it, 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 I'm not voting for a guy who believes that we're living in the end times. I just don't feel safe with that guy. You know, like, if he sees a sunset that is a little too bright orange in the top right, he's going to be like, well, fuck, the horsemen are going to come any second now, you know, like probably make a bad decision because i think people like that will prioritize their religion over their politics over their constituents right mm. um anyways that's just me um we have to cut it off there um mike i'd love to have you back because I, I i what i'm going to do um is and i confessed this to you before the show started that i haven't sat down and read your whole book um i played the COVID card because i think that's a good card to play when you don't do something and um but i am going to read it i'm going to read it i'm going to the next 10 days i'm going to read this book and I would love to have you back to, to talk about it more when I'm more familiar with that kind of stuff. And I also sort of like the perspective that you bring just as a journalist. So even if it's not Australian-centric stories, it would be nice to be able to have you back once in a while to sort of help us make sense as to what we're seeing from a journalist point of view. Um, sure. You know, like I've been, we've been doing ex-members. And like I said, I'm going to continue to do a bunch of ex-members. I have no issues with that at all. But to balance it out, academics and journalists and people like that would probably be beneficial. Um, so hopefully you can come back. Um, and Richard, you know, start watching Goodfellas or something so that some of these can land. Yeah, well, <laughs> That's okay. Didn't get that one. Yeah. There's nothing to get. I'm literally just asking you to watch more TV. It's amazing. 
Um, but thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. And uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll I'll talk to you both of you in the next couple of days. I'm sure. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thank you very much. Have a good one, guys. That was Michael Bachelard and Richard Marsh. Uh, Richard is the next member of the Plymouth Brethren, friend of the show. Michael is a deputy editor at The Age in Australia, and he is also the author of probably would be, as of right now, the you know the most detailed uh, book and probably the number one book as far as getting to know this cult. Uh, Behind the Exclusive Brethren is a 2008 book. And um, I, yeah, like I said, I like having that perspective on the show. I, I think journalists, academics, politicians, lawyers, these are the people that I want to have on so I can ask them questions like, why would you give hundreds of millions of dollars to an organization that claims they can talk to Jesus? Um, I think that's a legit question. And I do think, I, the reason why I asked the question about Commonwealth societies and whether or not th- those societies are ripe for cults like this to exist due to freedom of expression and religion laws is because I think that it's not as difficult a problem to fix as many people might think. I, I, I just, we, but we don't even try. We just immediately categorize it under the, like the right to worship and then, and that's it. We don't want to deal with it. I think that's a mistake. I think by the time, like by this time next year, I think most Canadians who have heard of this group are going to consider them a cult. Uh, mostly because I'm going to set myself on fire and like yell from the tallest building that they're a cult. Um, I'm not going to set myself on fire, but uh, you know, it, 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 these are stories that need to be told guys. We're right. We're kind of right at the beginning of this beat. Um, this is the road that I've chosen to go down. Um, I will die on this hill uh, because this hill uh, was planted with courage by people like Cheryl Hope. And uh, I feel like it, it is a principle now Um it is just, uh, and, and, and it's weird because every journalist has an ego that uh, becomes sort of um, enhanced when you do stories that no one else is doing. Like everyone wants to get the scoop. Everyone wants to break the story. They want to be doing a beat that no one's doing. And while I didn't seek this out, uh, and, and while I also would, would not turn down a legacy outlet if they approached me and said, you've been doing a lot of work on this, why don't you pull resources or allow you, why don't we give you some resources? We'll stick another person's name on the byline beside, beside yours and we'll do some sort of cooperative effort. I don't like legacy media, but I would do that because one of the reasons why Cheryl Hope came forward and was so courageous was because, you know, I was telling her that the, the you know, I gave her a worst case scenario to best case scenario uh, result of her coming forward with her harrowing story. Um, if you guys haven't watched that interview with Cheryl Hope, I pinned it to the top of my Twitter so you can go see it. But the, um, you know, the the way that I presented it to her was that, um, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't have any predictions as to how it was going to go. I didn't have any thoughts as to how successful we would be. Um, but as time has gone by, I do realize that I, I would hold my nose uh, and, and work with a legacy outlet that I probably don't really respect overall, although a lot of them have really good reporters and journalists. They just have a lot of them have really shitty editors, publishers, and legal teams. Um, and some of the reporters are just, you know, uh, in it for themselves, like, like their career is more about Instagram than writing good stories. Um, you know, but, um, but this beat that I find myself on, I am completely alone. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm by myself, which, 
you know, um, does tend to play off one of my biggest weaknesses, which is um, I don't often play well with others, although I think I'm past that in my life now, but uh, it was a big crutch for me. Um, you know, I, the reason why I was a freelancer wasn't because I was so good at organizing my freelance contracts and the regularity in which I received them. It's because I have a problem with authority. And when an editor or a boss would say something stupid, it is not uncommon for me to find several examples in my history where I'm like, that's just a stupid fucking idea, <laughs> you know, which is not the type of corporate etiquette that you probably want in an office. But the stories themselves are compelling enough that um, maybe what I should be doing is sort of taking a little bit more control in how to approach this and pitch partnering up with a CBC or a CTV or a global or a Toronto star or a globe and mail. Um, I don't know why Robin Doolittle wouldn't jump at the chance to do a story like this. Um, and I'm not trashing her when I say this, but many of the stories hers included that were published in the globe and mail since the me too era began had no evidence. Um, and I'm not saying the stories weren't true. I'm just saying the stories often, the formula was anonymous person keeps their anonymity and without evidence accuses a famous person of doing heinous things. And the famous person is named publicly. That is the extent of the evidence. And um, the way that we did things different here, and I think it is to protect both Cheryl and the network, the Dean Blundell network is that, um, you know, before we start doing stories on sexual assault and sexual abuse, which I think need to be told, we need to make sure that this person's credibility will remain sound and people won't attack them. We want to make sure that the network doesn't get sued. We want to make sure that I don't get sued, even though I have no money for them to get, you know, um, it's, it's, I, I need I need a bigger outlet to be able to uh, to to put this story out there a little bit um, uh, to to give it more reach, and I just think that um, you know the the uh, I'm trying to think of, the requirement that I have of of ex members who accuse sitting members, especially if they're alive, of um, of sexual abuse and assault. Um, you know, is a police report. That That is the, that is the arrangement that I make with the people who come forward. I haven't had anyone really give me a hard time about that yet, which is great because I'm not doing it in order to get them to jump through a hoop that they shouldn't have to jump through. I think that if, uh, I think I would have been sued already if I had an anonymous guest on pointing a finger at the organization and saying that a bunch of its members um, were, were doing heinous things to children. I think I probably would have been sued already. I, I think that I would have left myself open. Um, so it, it benefits everybody um, to do it the way that we're doing it. Now, um, this week uh, we have, uh, and the reason why I'm telling you all this is because uh, we have uh, another guest that's going to come on the show uh, to detail her experiences, um, you know, as, as I guess you would say a survivor of... Uh, of abuse from this cult and um her name is terry smith and she's going to be here on thursday um uh just to give you a little glimpse of what um what our feeler our first feeler conversation <laughs> was like um after 10 minutes our mutual uh appreciation for gallows humor 
especially at our own expense, was not only um, really apparent, but completely mutually supported. Um, what I'm saying is, is that I think I have a very interesting and unique rapport with this person. And uh, I'm really happy that I do because she has filed a police report uh, regarding what she has gone through. And she will be here on Thursday to talk about that, which is always something that's super difficult uh, for people to do. Um, so uh, I'm going to be um, deferring a lot to 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 her, to Terry, when she's on the show. I'm going to give her all the time she needs to answer every question. And I'm going to get uh, sit and become educated at yet another uh, ordeal that someone uh, trapped inside this organization had to go through. So that's Thursday. Um, that's at seven o'clock. And then on Friday, we have Cheryl Hope back on the show for her second appearance on the podcast. And the original plan um, was to have Terry come with her as well. So hopefully that's still in place. But regardless, uh, Cheryl Hope will be here on Friday. And until then, thank you for watching Black Bolt. Black Bolt. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. Kids. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on, on the Dean Blundell Network or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Because, because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do. do.